Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Britain is facing a winter of discontent after sector after sector announces they're going on strike and making things even more difficult for a struggling economy. I'm responsible for my union and I stand in front of you and take whatever you want to throw at me. Nobody from the employers is prepared to stand in front of me and take the responsibility for settling this dispute. That's what we need. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining those strikes you heard Mick Lynch of the RMT discuss at the top. What's causing them? Are there pay deals to be done? How can it be resolved? And is it amounting to a de facto general strike? Jim Picard, our chief political correspondent, will dissect, along with our economics correspondent, Delphine Strauss. And later, we'll be looking at how the Labour Party is taking on Rishi Sunak with a dose of what some are calling class war, looking at Rishi Sunak's background as one of the richest prime ministers to ever enter the office, and we'll be asking, is it going to work, and is this what voters care about? The FT's associate editor and columnist Stephen Bush will analyse, along with former Labour advisor and political strategist John McTernan. Thank you all for joining. Britain is going on strike, or at least large parts of it. Wave upon wave of strikers are hitting the country, from nurses to train drivers, out of concerns about inflation and its effect on the squeezing of living standards. But many of these strikes are putting further burdens on the already strained public services and raising questions, can a deal be done? Can the government actually find the money that many of these unions are looking for? Francis O'Grady, the General Secretary of the TUC, sets out her explanation of why so many unions, particularly in the public sector, are going on strike. We've had Conservative rule for 12 years. Britain is bottom of the league on growth, on investment, on uh, living standards for working people, with working people facing another two years of a real hit in their living standards. One in three public servants actively considering quitting the job. Nurses in tears because they are working 14-hour shifts with no relief. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back to the podcast. When you hear that, that's just one expression of the pain that's being felt across the public sector. And the coming weeks and months have been described as a winter of discontent reflecting the tumultuous 1970s where pretty much everybody seemed to go on strike. Would you say that's a fair description of what the country is facing? The most important thing here for historical context is that during 1979, the number of workers going on strike was phenomenally bigger than we are seeing at the moment, or we are set to see in the early months of next year. But compared to what we're used to over the last 20 years or so, this is a pretty big spike. And I think the last time we had a spike of any similarity was about a decade ago over pensions, I believe. But is there a lot of discontent in the air? Absolutely. Is it strung out over a lot of sectors? Absolutely. We're talking about fire, ambulance drivers, nurses, rail. We're talking about teachers, university staff. It's basically reaching the point where everybody knows 
someone or quite a few people who are either batting to go on strike or who are about to go on strike. So there's definitely that sense in the air. And it just kind of adds to that broader sense that things are going wrong in Britain in multiple directions, whether it's your mortgages going up or your energy bills going up. It just adds to that sort of sense of of discontent, which politically is a bit unfortunate for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Well, Delphine Strauss, great to have you back on the podcast. When you listen to all that, you could say, is this going to turn into a de facto general strike where everyone is simply just downing tools and the whole of the kind of public realm just starts to collapse? Or is this still very sector specific? So the scale of it and just how widespread it is, is starting to look a little bit more 70s-like than we expected. At the moment, the numbers involved are more like what we saw in 2011 when we had big public sector strikes or 2015 when a lot of universities had staff striking. But when you look at the numbers of people who are being balloted at the moment and who might take decisions to go on strike, maybe in the new year, teachers, some of the NHS workers, if those ballots go through, then you could see something that looks much more 1970s-like. But having said that, you probably don't get one big moment where everybody goes out together. You're more likely to get strikes with different timing strikes with different dates in one sector at a time. And also just because the rules unions have to meet now in order to call a strike are a lot more restrictive than they used to be. What unions tend to do tactically is they don't ballot everybody nationally all at once. It goes by employer. So for example, by NHS Trust or by one particular local authority for teachers. What that means is that you may pass the hurdles, call a strike in one place, but not in another. The Royal College of Nurses, for example, won a mandate to strike in just over half of NHS trusts. Unison, which announced its own ballot results this week, has a mandate to strike in half of the ambulance trusts, but not in most of the others. So it'll be a very, very disparate picture across the country. And when you hear what Frances O'Grady was saying, she's saying it's not just about the spike in inflation we've got at the moment, it's about the past 12 years of austerity and cutbacks to public services. Where do you see the balance? How much of this is fairly about what's going on now versus a general unhappiness about the state of public services? I mean, I think she's broadly right. I mean, we have a backdrop of incredibly high inflation, 11.1% in the latest data, you know, the growth outlook worsening. We've seen strikes in a lot of private sector organisations as well, but they tend to be settled much more quickly. Even in one of the biggest strikes, uh, which was workers at BT, that's that's actually been settled in the last few days with a pay deal that's worth something like 9% on average. In the public sector, it is much more intractable, partly because of the mechanism, which is that pay is generally set by pay review bodies that are meant to be independent, but are not necessarily seen as that by the workers. There's no bargaining mechanism. Now, Jim, let's unpack some of the different areas of striking. And the one that's probably had the most attention this week has been the nurses, because obviously everyone knows the NHS is under huge strain from the usual winter crisis, the COVID backlog, and of course, the ageing population and the fact we still haven't got anywhere near solving the social care issue. And this idea the nurses are going on strike, some are saying, well, in fact, it's maybe a bit irresponsible given where things are. Others saying, well, in fact, they're facing the most 
dreadful conditions in their work and they need to get better paid. And I was listening to the Jeremy Vine show on Radio 2, which is always a, a fascinating barometer of where public opinion is. And it was so split down the middle on the callers. You had some people who were saying, you know, just imagine what these nurses are having to work with. The other people saying, well, actually, some of them are already quite well paid compared to the average earnings of the country. Where do you see it and, and how do you see this dispute resolving? We've not only had nurses voting to go on strike, which is, I believe, the first time in their history they've voted for a strike over pay. We've also got ambulance workers as well from both Unison and GMB. It does just point to this growing crisis in the NHS where there is a massive shortage, I think, of over 100,000 nurses and doctors. There are supporters of the government who say that there have never been so many doctors and nurses in Britain. The problem is the number of doctors and nurses per patient is definitely lower than where it has been in the past. And therefore, we have these great waiting lists and just this sense of massive pressure on the service, despite Conservative governments putting extra money into the health service at the expense of other parts of Whitehall. It is still very much under strain as to whether the public support the idea of nurses going on strike. We should make clear that for both them and for ambulance workers, they will maintain a service for emergencies but any kind of routine work that they would otherwise be doing, that's where the cancellation is going to happen. Is the public supportive or not? When I was really young, I remember the world sort of divided into people who were either sympathetic towards striking unions or thought that they were kind of disgraceful left-wingers. It feels just to me that a lot like these days, people understand both sides of the argument. They understand that there is something quite unpleasant about giving people a massive real-terms pay cut after they've been working hard through the pandemic. You know, when inflation is at 10% and you're giving someone a 5% pay rise, that is a 5% pay cut. But I think the public also understand that the public finances are under duress. I think it's much more complicated than opinion polls suggest. In general, when ambulance workers go on strike, people don't see them as uh, slackers. No, absolutely. Now, one of the other areas, Jim, which you've written a lot about is, of course, trains and that the RMT led by the very charismatic Mick Lynch, who we heard at the beginning of the podcast, have been saying that they need a much better deal for their workers. And they've been on a series of strikes and they've got a whole lot in the run up to Christmas, which I think would potentially ruin and disrupt a lot of Christmas for the first normal Christmas people have had in three years. But Mark Harper was put in by um, Rishi Sunak to be a slightly more emollient character, shall we say, than some of the predecessors. And this is what he had to say say about the potential for the train strikes at Christmas time. The, the train operating companies and Network Rail will have the ability to reach a deal, but we have to be able to have that reform package negotiated because it's only that that throws up the savings. I do not have a bottomless pit of taxpayers' money to throw at this problem. So do you think they can find a solution, Jim? So to be clear, the four 48-hour stoppages that the RMT has penciled in are not quite over Christmas and New Year. They're kind of mid-December and then I think the first week of January, so after New Year's Eve. But yeah, they, they still have the prospect for quite a lot of disruption. Now, interestingly, I was talking to the RMT yesterday and asking you know, where the gap was between what the government's offering and where they are. And you know, they never go public on what figure they actually want. They talk about it being in line with inflation. So let's say they're after 10% and the government's been offering more like 5 or 6 or whatever it is. You can kind of see a landing position around the 8 area. But I think one reason that the talks could potentially still go on for quite a lot longer is that it's never been just 
about pay. And this is true not only of the railways, but also of many of these other sectors. So where it's RMT, they're worried about potential job cuts and efficiencies and network rail. You've also got the government seeking to close ticket offices. You've also got the government trying to, as ministers would see it, modernise certain working practices, such as you you have machines now that can check for cracks on the railway lines, but the unions still want it to be done with the human eye. But it's not inconceivable to see a settlement. And of course, as soon as you have settlements to the closest to inflation, that girds the loins of other unions could have potentially have a knock-on effect. And people did notice that the barristers earlier this year got 15%. Because you mentioned, Delphi, now a couple of sectors where there have been deals, and one is the barristers who have had a long-running dispute, and the other you mentioned was BT, but then also a deal with the local government association. So what can we take away from those settlements about where the ones who are still on strike might be able to find a landing zone? All of these disputes have their own specificities, and the barristers one in particular had been running for a long time, even before the inflation cost of living crisis kicked off. It was quite unique. The local government also, the particular thing there is that the unions actually have bargaining arrangements with the local government association there. So it's not quite the same sort of handed down from central government approach. One thing that might be worth looking at is the revised pay offer that went out from the Scottish government this week for NHS workers in Scotland, which was worth something like 7.5% on average. That pay offer the unions are now putting to their members. It's one they think might be acceptable. So that's an interesting pointer, maybe. And Jim, I guess this takes the wider question that we heard about this at PMQs this week, where Rishi Sunak and Kirsten went backwards and forwards. And Rishi Sunak used the tried and tested Tory line of talking about union paymasters trying to bankroll strikes that are disrupting the country. And Kirsten is saying Rishi Sunak's responsible for the big drop in living standards. You know, what's your sense about how that develops politically? I have to say I missed PMQs yesterday because I was having lunch with an old pal from Vote Leave. I did see the Conservative attack adverts that were on social media last night basically saying that under Labour you'll get more strikes, more inflation, more debt and more migration. And I have to say the brass neck of of that attack line when we have a government which is presiding over record levels of all four it just struck me as sensational. It's like they're trying to pull these levers which have worked in the past. It feels to me a bit like they're running out of ways to attack Labour, especially because Keir Starmer has made himself such a a small target by being quite boring and quite patriotic. You can't really talk a narrative into existence, which is what they're trying to do here. And also, Keir Starmer has not exactly been enthusiastically in support of these strikes, has he? You know, he's distanced himself quite a lot and he sacked Sam Tarry, who was a shadow rail minister, for attending a picket line of the RMT and has taken quite a tough line on other people in the party because of that. And also, Labour is not falling into the trap of saying, yes, we'd most definitely give all of these public sector workers a 10% pay rise. They're kind of fudging that question. They're saying it's primarily an issue for the independent pay bodies. It doesn't make them a a very sort of energetic, attractive political force, but it does make them much harder for the Tories to take chunks out of. Although the difference there is that, I mean, I think they've actually said quite explicitly that they would also not fund the pay deals people are asking for. They also say it's not affordable, although of course there's no precise number given. But the difference is that they would legislate to give trade unions better bargaining rights. Because there were some reforms brought in by the Conservatives, I think it was actually the last couple of governments, where they said they were going to make it much tougher to go on strike. And you mentioned about how sectors are being affected in different ways, Delphine. They would definitely take an approach of 
giving trade unions a better environment to operate in and also making other changes to employment law that people have been pushing for. So Labour have promised to rip up all this legislation. They, they promised to turn the clock back at, at least five years. And so the biggest change we've seen under this Conservative government is that you need to not only have 50% of workers saying yes to go on strike, but also in areas where it's kind of critical infrastructure, I can't remember how they phrase it, but you know, important public services, you need to have at least 40% of the entire workforce, which is quite a difficult hurdle to get over. What we've seen literally in the past couple of days is that Uniston balloted 400,000 members over strike action, 80,000 voted to go ahead. But the way that actually pans out is because they only got approval in certain ambulance trusts, it means that the number who will actually legally be able to go on strike are only about 15,000. So you can see in practice there the way that this new legislation is throttling the ability of people to go on strike. And finally, Delphine, this question, if you listen to what Rishi Sunak was saying about these strikes and was saying these are kind of union leaders who are going very militant to, for their own reasons and to try and harm the government. Is there any sense of that from the union leaders that you've spoken to? You know, how much of this is about sort of their personal position versus the actual issues of their members? I just wonder if there's any sort of grandstanding going on at all. I mean, there's always some grandstanding. And of course, union leaders will see a moment like this as an opportunity to show what trade unions can do for their members. They want to show that unions can win people a better deal and are worth joining. Of course they do. But having said that, the backing for these strikes is much broader than we've seen in the recent past. And there are very clear economic reasons for it. Finally, Jim, we've been discussing in our office this week how long that will go on for and whether there is a tipping point and if things do get so bad with the strikes, public opinion will go in the opposite direction. You can definitely see people getting a bit of strike fatigue. You can definitely see it with the railways. I have to admit, I, I'm finding Mick Lynch's jokes kind of less amusing than, than at the start of all this because the strikes are disrupting my travel as a, as a member of the public. But, you know, that works for the government as well. People get fed up with the unions, but they also get fed up with government too. And, and eventually that will create pressure on both sides to strike some sort of deal. But we're still going to have rolling months of this in various different sectors over the next winter and spring. Jim and Delphine, thank you very much. Out of touch and weak. Those are the two characteristics that the Labour Party has chosen to hone in on for their attacks on Rishi Sunak. For much of the past month since he became Prime Minister, Keir Starmer has focused on the weakness. But this week, the focus turned on to his wealth and the sense that he comes from a rarefied background that is alien to the rest of the country. At Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, Starmer went for the attack on his education at one of the country's most expensive schools. Winchester College has a rowing club, a rifle club, an extensive art collection. They charge over £45,000 a year in fees. Why did he hand them nearly £6 million of taxpayers' money this year in what his levelling up secretary calls egregious state support? Well, Stephen Bush, great to have you back on as always. Let's just talk briefly about the weak element of those two attacks because there's been some clear opportunities for Keir Starmer. Number one, you obviously had the allegations against Sir Gavin Williamson, the former Minister Without Portfolio. He was forced to resign. You had the allegations against the Home Secretary, Suella Barverman. She's still in position but facing a judicial review over things being accused of with illegal migration detention. And then finally, you've had Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister, and this sense that he is a bully and that these allegations, and crucially that Sunak knew about it. So we've heard a lot of that in PMQs. 
Do you think the weakness thing stands up to scrutiny? The weakness thing is interesting, right? Because it's not a thing that Labour say come up in their focus groups. I try and make a point of going on to, you know, whenever I sidle up to a private company and an organisation, <laughs> oh, can I sit in on something? It, it hasn't come up in any of the focus groups by various sort of um, polling companies, and I've sat in either. But it's sort of obviously true, right? You have wrote that very good piece this week sort of about the four factions in the, the party that make it hard for him to get what he's done. He has this government and essentially this kind of weird kind of chimera designed solely to pass budgets to keep various factions on side. And actually we saw in that clip, right, we have a situation where the policy he wants on private schools is one of his secretaries of state is on record making a very eloquent argument against. Now, in normal times, a prime minister would be strong enough to go, God, this is embarrassing. We've got to get Michael Gove out of there. But he can't do that because this government needs all of Because he's weak. Them. Yeah, because he's weak. It's the most effective type of political attack line. It's true. Yeah, it's true. And, and any fair-minded observer goes, yeah, it's about rights, bank to rights there. Well, John McTurnan, it's great to have you back on the podcast after far too long. And you've answered my question <laughs> I was going to ask you there, which is, do you think there's enough truth for it for Starmer's narrative to take a hold? And do you think the public will agree with him on that? Or is this just Westminster knockabout? Because we are talking here about the factions within the Tory party and MPs and voters don't take much notice of that. The thing is, it's a character attack. The thing that people notice in prime ministers and leaders is they can't actually judge whether all the decisions they make are right or not. They don't have all the information. They do have an ability to judge on character. And when somebody looks weak and they act weak, they kind of go, they wouldn't characterize it the way me and Stephen are doing or you are doing. But I came to your book launch this week and uh, I saw Michael Portillo and uh, we were chatting and Michael was going, you can't even tell which thing they're going to U-turn on. So sometimes it's pro-NIMBY, as in the housing targets being taken away, but then sometimes it's anti-NIMBY with seeming to want to put um, onshore wind in place and force that into, into communities. That is a sense that you're making it up as you go along, and that is the most dangerous thing. It's the rudderlessness, it's the drift, and the one thing that the new Prime Minister needs is to give a sense of direction, slowly, gradually rebuilding uh, confidence in the public among voters and in the economy and in the global markets. And if you look as though you're just being driven this way and that way, that adds up to a picture of somebody in a drift. And this is something I've had a bash at write about in my FT column this week, the fact that Sunak is going away for six weeks, essentially, the idea there's not much going on in politics. <laughs> there's a couple of strikes we were talking about earlier in the yeah. podcast. But obviously, you know, it's Christmas time. It's, coming. it's normally a lower-key political time in terms of stuff you have to do. And he essentially wants to come back in the new year and then say, right, this is what Sunakism is, because you've kind of got three things that define where he's come from. One is the 2019 Tory manifesto, one is the summer leadership contest, and one is what he's doing now. And add all those three things together, it's not entirely clear where exactly he is, and that, I think, does create that perception of weakness. When the cat's away, the mice will play, and we know the backbenchers of the Tory party are at it all the time. We know that the big dog himself is prowling around thinking that maybe he's able to come back next year after local elections look really bad. But more importantly, Labour with its tail up, Labour aren't going to go, do you know what, the PM's away for six weeks, should we just have a break? They're going to say six weeks when we can make the headlines, we can drive the news. And it's the moment when there's a weakness in the PM, it's actually driven by his backbench, it's still the Tory party making the news, so Labour have to shift to a place where they can make the news. And I think a space that's created by Rishi Sunak, because the thing is, 
We do know what he's, what he's about. He did, he did a pretty good maze lecture where he set out as a chancellor what he wanted to do for the economy. That still would work pretty well for him as a prime minister, a prime minister with, with economic experience and some kind of stable sense of how to grow the economy. Slow, hard, difficult work. But that again fits with the projection of competence that he needs. I think going away for a break is dangerous because when you're away, things can happen. It's dangerous because it's, it suggests that he can do that. When How many workers could afford to take such a long break. Now, Stephen, let's go on to the out-of-touch element, because again, in some respects, this battle's already been tested by the Tory party, that in the summer you had supporters of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, people like Nadine Dorries, having a go at Rishi Sunak for the cost of his shoes, his suits, his watch, his heated tea mug, you name it, everything about it was generally seen as a little bit expensive and sort of out-of-touch, just from what people could even dream of buying. And that was the focus of Starmer's PMQ's attacks. Why do you think he went in on this topic this week, when, as John has just been saying, there's so much other stuff going on. So I think there are a couple of reasons. The first was that Labour had been attacked first over their private schools tax policy, which, I mean, is actually really a revenue raiser. That's yeah. actually what it exists for, right? It exists so they can go, we totally do have a costed plan because we've got this extra $1.7 billion we'd do by doing this. Because although the individual policy is popular, the idea of Labour tax rises in general less so. So I think what they wanted to do is they wanted to go, look... This isn't an argument about our revenue raisers. This is actually an argument about whether or not the Prime Minister is too rich to win an election. Now, I don't think that there actually is such a thing as too rich to win an election. But in some ways, this was, I think, primarily actually a defensive PMQs on Keir Starmer's point. It was saying, look, I want the argument about school fees to be about the idea and it's the politics of envy. I do not want it to be about the idea and it's the politics of there are no easy tax rises left. I think that's absolutely right. But I think what we saw in Kier and surprised me slightly was a new flexibility, a new ability that when the attack came back from, from Rishi, this is an attack on aspiration. Kier was able to go, well, talk about aspiration. Well, actually, people who want to can't buy a house and the age at which you can buy a house is going up. And I think that attack probably resonated massively. The issue about his wealth, as obviously the statistic is often put around that he's the first prime minister to be richer than the monarch of the country that he is serving in. And, you know, there is a huge amount of wealth we're talking about here, John, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds, more so, you know, it's not even the 1%, it's probably like the 0.01%. And in some ways, Labour has sort of done this before. If you think of the 2015 election, there was an awful lot from Ed Miliband about David Cameron, the toff David Cameron from his privileged background. And even that, obviously, it was a different level to where Rishi Sunak is, but it didn't quite work. And I'm always sceptical of these what you might call class war attacks, because I do wonder whether voters just are not interested. I don't think the class war attacks work. I think they bounce off or they fall flat. What I think is difficult is when you have a country worried about cost of living, when you have a country worried about ambulance waits, about NHS waiting lists, about rising crime, about women's safety on the streets, about young men's safety on the streets of London, it's quite easy to really badge a prime minister as out of touch if he's not talking about those issues, not addressing those issues. Rishi Sunak has the ability to say, my home secretary, she's in place to be controlling immigration and fighting crime. It's like, these are bad issues for the Tories unless they have a plan, a strategy, an attack, a a way of actually gripping those issues. And I think it's the lack of grip and therefore the lack of focus and the lack of talking about those policies in substance that people can understand that allows Labour to go out of touch. And so you... Out of touch becomes one of the most binary, most important binaries in politics is, is on your side versus out of touch. Boris Johnson was definitely on the side of the voter 
but that's why he won the Brexit election. Out of touch is deadly. You can never get back from out of touch. And so the, trying to stick that label on him, I'm sure that's what Labour's focus groups are focused on at the moment. And Stephen, what's the answer to that? If you're in Sunak's position, what sort of things can you do to rebut that? You know, they talk about aspiration. He was referencing, of course, his family story. And I remember Cameron gave his speech. He'd been PM for two years, opposition leader for seven years. So a prominent figure for some time. And in this situation, he was saying that, you know, it's not about where I came from, it's where I'm going. And I want everyone to have the same opportunities as I've had. And it feels like Sunak is going to have to do that sort of thing. Do you think he can pull that off? Probably not, no, to be honest. One of the differences with David Cameron was a very effective politician, right? And one of the things he did incredibly well was he presented himself as this kind of, oh, I'm just this folksy, like, Bowden-wearing dad. He had a clear middle, sense of middle, what he wanted to achieve. Middle, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly, right. Whereas the distinct challenge, I think, of Rishi Sunak's wealth is that most of it's not his. He's married into it, right? Which means that the usual things that I would advise a politician who about their wealth is to say, yes, I own this because this is a great country. We all succeed when we can all succeed, etc., yeah. etc. Et but he can't really say any of that because him marrying well is great news for him, but it doesn't really say anything about the national story. And there's an added problem than, as we saw with the row of uh, non-doms, where, you know, I continue to think that actually there's a pretty good argument to be made that the UK taxpayer shouldn't be able to claim the tax on the dividends on an Indian technology company. But his family is such a kind of berserk button for him. He starts to look very bad on, on televisions. I think it's difficult because he clearly doesn't want to and doesn't believe he does need to come up with a yeah. sort of national story of his wealth. It's quite hard to do a sort of inspiring, I aspire to a country where every man can marry a very marry, marry wealthy woman. I mean, I'd love to marry a very wealthy woman, but, you know, I just don't think it's really a portable aim. And so, yeah, I think he's going to struggle on it. And John, over the past sort of 12 years since Labour's last in government, I to think how many Labour leaders and Prime Minister combos we've seen at yeah. the dispatch box. How well-matched do you think Sunak and Starmer are in terms of opponents? Because I think sometimes when it was Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn, I think you could say that Jeremy Corbyn was roundly beaten by Boris Johnson with his sort of bluster and his usual way of doing things. David Cameron often got the better of Ed Miliband. I think he was more in control and had a more authoritative tone. But it feels as if Starmer and Sunak have a lot of attributes, if not their personal background that Stephen was talking about. A lot of characteristics are quite similar. There's two things to say. One is that you should also judge prime ministers versus opposition leaders by the record. And, you know, in terms of getting rid of prime ministers, Starmer is 2-0 up. Um, He has seen off two already. I thought when the two of them were going to be face-to-face, it would be much more of a match because they both have very similar approaches to politics, quite serious, verging on the technocratic. And you were taking away from it the personal bitterness between, you could see between Boris and, and Keir. That, that was a morality were, thing they, as they well. They didn't so respect was, each yeah, other, did no, they? No, they didn't. I think that Keir has found a new flex, a new ability to think on his feet. Now, all great silks are able to think on their feet. That's one of their characteristic strengths. I'd not been seeing that in, in the Commons, to be honest. I've not been seeing that in PMQs. But you start to see it this week, and you've seen it in earlier weeks. Maybe it's sharper lines. I think he's getting better lines written for him by a speechwriter. He's just better prepared. I thought they were going to be evenly matched. It feels actually Keir's experience in PMQs is coming through. And it's very clear that he says some things to be clipped on the evening news. And I think his clips run much better, whereas Rishi still sometimes seems to read out the briefing book, and he really shouldn't. I think the thing is, ultimately, PMQs is always one out 
outside the chamber, mm. right? Yes. Yeah, the prime minister can mostly force a draw because they have the final answer. But broadly speaking, there has never been a PMQs which is actually settled <laughs> by the exchanges suppose the partial exception of the time that Ed Miliband's people convinced themselves and David Cameron couldn't rule out. I think we are seeing a fascinating transformation in Keir Starmer's public performances in that I would have said one of the most embarrassing ways to spend 20 minutes in, in Westminster was when he didn't feel that his line was very good and he, yeah, he'd kind of deliver these bad jokes with the sort of enthusiasm <laughs> of a hostage video. He's clearly feeling better, right? Mm. But I mean, who among us wouldn't feel better with a 20-point poll lead? <laughs> exactly. And finally, John, I think... In the first couple of PMQs, Rishi Sunak didn't really have anything to say because he hadn't done the budget and he was stuck in this place of having to say, yes, mistakes were made under Liz uh, Trust, but by the way, I'm going to defend everything that's happened over the past 12 years because uh, you're Conservative Party leader, you kind of had to. But, you know, he's now... Well, unfortunately, got, he's done the budget. Well, now he's done the budget and I think that helped him have a better PMQs after that. But this comes back to the earlier point we were saying that if he wants to do better against some and find a way of fending off these attacks and he's weak and he's out of touch is to have something he can actually say and so I take your point about disappearing off I mean he's not literally going to be hiding away in a shed in County <laughs> Durham like Dominic Cummings but I think he's going to be focused much more on, on these kind of deeper issues but it will be interesting when we get to that point yes. in the new year and you've got something more substantial when is the pressure going to come on Labour to put more details on what it would do? Labour's going to have two years of pressure. Labour needs, in my view, to look and act like the alternative government. But as a consequence, they will be and should be treated like the alternative government, but without the ability of the civil service and treasury to test everything and, and plan everything and cost everything. I was very surprised in the budget when Jeremy Hunt explicitly said the VAT on the private school fees would raise £1.7 billion, because it means he was basically giving £1.7 billion to the Labour front bench to spend. I was surprised too they didn't do something on non-DOM tax, because if I'd been doing it politically, I'd done something so you could say Labour can't make up a number and spend it. But Labour can spend non-DOM tax, 3.4 billion or whatever figure we're giving on it. And I think that Labour needs really to have its symbolic policies in place. That for me is, is the, the real thing. What are the differences it'll make? I think the central thing is, as John says, right, people will now think Labour's going to be the government. I think the challenge for Rishi Sunak is that he doesn't really want to be the type of prime minister that Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement said. In our, oh yeah, exactly. He, he wants to be more right wing yeah. in this yes. government. Yes. The problem is, is that like, well, the political decision has been made. Yeah. The weird tension of this government is he is a politician on the party's right, governing in this weird coalition with the party's left. But I think he needs to accept because the fiscal event has happened, those decisions have been made, then he is going to have to, to fight the next election on Jeremy Hunt's terms. Let Rishi be Hunt, basically. <laughs> well, Stephen and John, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.